Newsmakers is a production of Wisconsin Eye. To keep programs like this free and accessible to all, please consider a charitable gift to wisi.org slash donate or text WISI to 44321. This program is brought to you from Wisconsin Eye's Margaret Farrow Studio. Hello and welcome to Newsmakers. I'm your host, Lisa Pugh. This is a special Newsmakers series featuring candidates for state Supreme Court. The primary election is set for February 21st, general election April 4th. And today we are sitting down with Justice Daniel Kelly, candidate for state Supreme Court. Thank you for joining us, Justice Kelly. My pleasure, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me here. So let's start out talking a little bit about Wisconsin Eye. Our, our mission is to inspire informed civil dialogue, civic participation. With that in mind, why are you running for state Supreme Court? Well, I think there's two reasons. Uh, one, um, having had the opportunity to serve on the Supreme Court already, I found it to be the honor of a lifetime to serve the people of Wisconsin as one of their Supreme Court justices. And as I've been traveling over the state over the last, oh, call it a year, year and a half or so, uh, one of the things that I've, um, that I've heard frequently is that they want to know that their next Supreme Court justice is going to be an adherent of the Constitution, who's going to be committed to the rule of law and understanding that his responsibility is simply to apply the law rather than make it up as we go along. And so they say, you know, we see the record that you've had and, um, and we are pleased that you have shown that fidelity to our Constitution and to our statutes. And that's the kind of person we want to be running. And so we, we want you to run. And so uh, they've asked me to, and after... Uh, uh, a lot of prayer uh, with my family and consideration. Uh, that's why we decided to do this. So the current state Supreme Court is thought to have a four to three conservative majority. And this election is thought to kind of determine the future ideological balance of the court. Do you agree with that? And do you think ideological balance on the state Supreme Court is important? Yeah, so let's unpack that a little bit. So, you know, when we talk about uh, a conservative court versus something else. One of the problems is it tends to suggest that there is some measure of politics uh, that is involved in what the court does. And politics are poison to the work of the court. So, uh, so I refer to myself as a constitutional conservative because those words together, uh, our job is to conserve the original public meaning of the Constitution, not to import our personal politics or our personal views or our personal values into the work that we do, but just apply the law as it exists. And so when I look at the, uh, uh, the balance of the court, what I'm looking for is not the members' political affiliations. I'm looking at how they, uh, how they relate to the Constitution and to the statutes, how they do their work, how they do their reasoning. And what I like to see is, uh, is a justice uh, who uh, focuses entirely on the existing law, not talking about uh, what the law ought to be uh, or how it could be better or what, uh, what have you. Because the people of Wisconsin, they look at us and they say, we've asked you to do one job, just one job. Please do it well, but it's just one thing. Decide our cases according to the law that already exists. Don't, 
Don't concern yourself with whether the law is a good law or a bad law or a wise law or not. We've got an entire branch of government to address that. We call it a legislature, right? And so, uh, so that's the way I look at this. I, I don't think there, um, you know, to the extent that we talk about ideologies on the court, it really should be simply this. Um, are you going to do the work of the court or are you going to do the work of a legislature? And that's what I'm looking for. And so, you know, I see, uh, I see that there are four people, I think, uh, on the court presently who are committed to doing the work of a court and the court alone. So even though you are described as a conservative, maybe endorsed by entities that people would consider to be conservative, conservative ideologically, what, what is your message then to voters that you will be voting in a way that assures that you are taking the politics out? Perhaps yeah. you've already asked that, but if you could go a little bit deeper. Yeah, absolutely. So I think in order to do that, um, uh, we start with this premise. Everybody has politics, right? Everybody. Uh, the question is, uh, once you put on the black robe, do you know how to set those aside so that it doesn't influence the work that you do? And I think to do that, you have to have a methodology. It's not something that's just going to come along by happenstance. It has to be intentional, and it has to be, um, uh, you have to have that methodology to be able to consistently do it every single time. So here's my methodology. I start with the laws that are applicable to the case, and those are the premises. And then you use rigorous logic to move from those, re those premises all the way down to the conclusion. And when you're done, you should be able to look back and see an unbroken chain of logic between the conclusion and the premises. And if you do, if you see that unbroken chain of logic, that's the guarantee that the conclusion is commanded by the law rather than by the individual's personal preferences. Now, if you see a break in that logic, well, that's where personal preferences start to seep into the work of the court. So that's the important thing, I think, is having that methodology. And so I've written the opinions, every single opinion I've written uh, while I was on the court was done with that in mind. So, you know, I know that the authority we use as justices is only on loan from the people of Wisconsin. And so when I wrote an opinion, I understood myself to be writing a report to my bosses about what I've done with the authority that they've loaned to me. And so uh, I want it to be uh, opinions that are accessible to anyone, regardless of whether they have a legal background, because they should be able to look at the opinions I write and be able to track that, see the logic that connects the premises to the conclusion so that they can have confidence that their court is deciding cases according to law and not according to somebody's politics. In the past, you've been critical of current conservative Justice Brian Hagedorn for some decisions in, in ways that he's broken with the conservative majority, you've called him unreliable. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I think uh, probably a good way of looking at that question is a brace of cases, uh, the Palm decision and then the Becker decision that followed after that. So uh, you might remember the COVID era yeah? I think we all do. I've been trying to forget. Um, but we had that safer at home order that got issued. Uh, Secretary Palm uh, listed out a bunch of requirements that all of Wisconsinites had to follow and said that this was legally enforceable. So that came to our court uh, for consideration. And the, the opinion of the court was, well, you didn't follow the rulemaking process, and therefore the, uh, the order was unlawful for that reason. And that's true. It did not follow the rulemaking process and therefore was unlawful. 
But there was a more significant problem there. And Justice Rebecca Bradley and I wrote about this in separate opinions. And it was that the an executive branch bureaucrat um, took the authority of the legislature to essentially make the law. Well, our Constitution says the legislature gets to make the law, not the executive branch. And so, uh, so we looked at that order and we said, we see legislation here. And because it's, uh, it is of the nature of legislation, that's unconstitutional. You have to let the legislature address those matters. All right, so the decision was four to three, and uh, Justice Hagedorn wrote a separate opinion in which uh, he suggested that there was no constitutional problem with the executive branch making the law. Well, I take significant issue with that because the separation of powers is the very part of the Constitution that sets it apart from all the other forms of government that we've seen. It is that separation of powers that protects our liberties. And so, uh, so we saw then, after I left the court, that issue came back at the county level and Justice Hagedorn wrote a separate opinion there in which he suggested that the separation of powers is more of a political question than a, uh, a legally enforceable constitutional command. So that's an example of where I'm concerned about, uh, about what he's doing uh, with the uh, constitutional issues. Um, abortion policy, election administration, legislative redistricting are considered to be some of the most contentious issues that might come before the court mm -hmm. after this election. Would you agree with that or, or other, other issues that you would expect to see if you're elected? I, uh, you know, there's always going to be a, uh, a level of contention in, in the cases that come before the court, right? That's why, why they're there. there. They are, people are contending. Uh, some will have more political salience than others. Uh, certainly those issues have significant uh, political salience. And, and that's why I think it's so very important that, uh, that justices understand their proper role. So the people of Wisconsin have not asked us to resolve their political disputes for them. Uh, they say, we've got that handled. We will be in conversation with our legislature to resolve political differences. What we want you to do is just that one thing decide our cases according to the law. And don't you dare go imposing on the prerogatives of the people of Wisconsin to decide their law through the legislature. And so although those issues uh, likely will come to the court and have high political salience, the job of the court in those cases will be exactly the same as it is in every other ca case that comes before the court. Decide the legal questions according to the law that already exists. And if you go beyond that, if you start substituting your personal politics or your personal values for that law, then you are breaking faith with the Constitution and you're breaking faith with the people of Wisconsin. On the issue of abortion, did the U.S. Supreme Court get it right in sending that debate back to the states? Well, whether they got it right or not, it is what they did, and so now it is to the states to work on that question. And the question, of course, is how do you work on it? And we have our constitutional order set up the way that it is um, because uh, this is how we've decided we're going to uh, live together in society together. We are going to decide our policies uh, through our legislature and we're going to have our legal disputes resolved through the court. And so, uh, and so this is a matter for the people of Wisconsin to take up with their legislators. 
uh, and it is a responsibility of the court to respect their decision on that matter. So uh, under your understanding of the law, it, how should Wisconsin move forward on the abortion issue? You're saying first the legislature, then maybe it'll come before the court? Well, it, uh, it, it, it certainly will come before the court. I know that there's a, uh, a currently pending case uh, the Attorney General uh, has challenged the 1849 law. Interestingly, he's not said that it's unconstitutional. He said it's been superseded by a later statute that addresses the same question. And so the issue that's going to be before the court is how do those two statutes interact and does one supersede the other? And uh, so I think that's probably going to be the first question that comes before the court. But I wouldn't be surprised if the constitutionality of the statute uh, would eventually make its way to the court. And at that point, uh, and again, the responsibility of the court will be exactly the same as every single other case that it addresses. And it will be to simply look at the Constitution and the statutes and determine legal questions, not political questions. On the topic of redistricting this past fall, Wisconsin voters elected a Democratic governor, Republican U.S. Senator, and the GOP gained seats in both the, the Assembly and the Senate. Um, some say that's evidence of gerrymandering. Um, the Supreme Court used a least change approach to draw the most current maps. Was that the right approach to use? Do you have an opinion on that? So let's, uh, uh, let's start with the groundwork first, right? Again, we, uh, in the court, we just uh, address legal questions. Now, a map is primarily a political exercise, right? Um, the legislature decides what communities to put together, which to separate, uh, how to apportion all of that. There are legal elements that the map has to meet, uh, and the legal elements of the map are what the court can address. Everything else is outside the authority of the court. So when a map comes to the court to, uh, for adjudication, what, what we look at is, well, what does the Constitution say that the, uh, the map has to do? And what do the relevant statutes say about what the map has to do? And so I think the phrase least changes is meant to encapsulate that aspect. So it's a recognition that there are political aspects uh, to the map that they don't have the authority to address. And so they say, all of those political decisions that get made in the legislature, we don't, we don't get to touch those. All, all our responsibility is is to look at the, the legal deficiencies of the map and fix those. So population equality, you obviously have to do that. That's a legal requirement. Um, compactness and contiguity, that's something that our Wisconsin Constitution provides for. The Voting Rights Act, making sure that minority populations are not disadvantaged, uh, that's a legal requirement. And so uh, when you adjudicate a redistricting map, those are the issues you can look at. But with respect to whether it advantages or disadvantages a party politically, it's simply beyond the jurisdiction of the court. So do you have an opinion on whether or not the current map is fair, or you're saying that's not your authority uh, as a justice? Yeah, it's just not our authority as justice. And so, uh, and so I don't express any opinion on that, and I do that intentionally, and here's why. Uh, when, when people come into a courtroom to have their case decided, they want to be confident that the person they're appearing before uh, is uh, impartial and will make their decisions based entirely on the law. So we have to do this not only in fact, but also in appearance. So the worst possible thing for a litigant is to walk into a court, see a judge on the bench, and say, wait a minute, didn't I just see you yesterday 
talking about what you think the law ought to be, and by the way, you're talking about the law that my case relies on, and you said you didn't like it, and now am I, do I have any confidence I'm going to get a fair hearing in front of you? So as, uh, as jurists, our, um, our responsibility is not only to be impartial in fact, but also in appearance. And so, uh, so my commitment has been that I don't, uh, I don't discuss publicly my personal politics. I don't discuss publicly my personal values because they don't have anything to do with the work of the court. Uh, the court is likely to hear cases related to the environment and regulation of the environment. Can you point to important, important case law that might uh, shed light on how you would approach environmental issues, uh, government balancing government regulation with the interests of business and consumer protection? Yeah, so all of those kinds of questions, those are, uh, those are politically uh, decided. And so, uh, so I wouldn't point to any particular. I mean, we'd have to get into specifics, and then, then we'd, we'd run into the problem. Show. It would be an hour-long show, and then I'd be saying, "Well, I can't talk about that because it's an issue that might become before the court." Uh, so I think just um, uh, a method of approach. But here again, it's going to be the same method as for every other uh, case. So uh, in a lot of ways. Um, the work of a jurist is very procedurally oriented, right? So we have a process that we use to resolve cases. And like I said, we, you know, for me, this, you start with the law as the premises. You use rigorous logic to move from that down to the conclusion. And that squeezes out your personal values, your personal politics, and, and guarantees that the result is simply commanded by the law. So on environmental questions, going to be exactly the same thing. So uh, the legislature passes its statute, uh, DNR or other, other uh, entities will um, promulgate rules on, uh, on how that will be put into effect, and those, uh, the rules will be a, um, a result of people in that agency looking at the statute and what it's trying to accomplish, and then determining, using their best judgment, on how to um, put that into effect. So, uh, so when that comes to us, uh, you know, we, uh, we aren't going to be uh, sitting in judgment over the wisdom of decisions and whether it's accomplishing the objectives that the legislature or the executive agency had in mind. Uh, what we're going to be deciding is, what does the law provide for? Did it grant the uh, administrative agency the scope of authority to do what it did? And did the agency act in accordance with the law? Now, that might sound like really dry and dull, but one of my superpowers is to be boring and to stick to the job of the court, right? The exciting stuff takes place over the legislature, and you have your, your, your arguments and your passionate debates about what the law ought to be, uh, but in the courts, we do, uh, we do one thing every single day. We, juice, we just do that methodology. We look at what the law commands us to do, and then we do that thing, and then we're done. You're not giving us any breaking news here. So. I'm, I'm afraid not. <laughs> and this is actually, uh, and it, pardon me for saying so, but thank you for saying that, because this is uh, what the court ought to be. The court, um, you know, back in the day when the United States Constitution was being adopted, Alexander Hamilton wrote about the role of the court, and he said the courts would be the least dangerous branch of government because it has neither force nor will but merely judgment. And it has to rely on the executive branch even to put that judgment into effect. And so he said that if a court does the work of a court, 
liberty will have nothing to fear from the courts. But he said if the court combines its power with the power of one of the other branches, then liberty will have everything to fear. That's where you make headlines. Huh? That's where you make headlines. <laughs> and so the court's doing its job when it doesn't make headlines. So the uh, state Supreme Court justices are, are, are known for many things, but mostly for their writing. Mm -hmm. I think you've been uh, a prolific writer in your time on the court. Is there any um, jurist, a writer that you admire, that you look to? Yeah, for writing, I think uh, Justice Scalia uh, is uh, just an exemplar. And I um, and I appreciate him so much. Uh, I was, uh, before he passed, I was at, uh, several years ago now, uh, I was in a, a, an event in which he was speaking, and somebody uh, stood up and asked the question that I wish I had asked, uh, but I didn't have the guts to do it. Uh, he says, Justice Scalia, you are a beautiful writer. Uh, this must come easily to you because it's just so good, um, just as a, uh, as a matter of the written word. And Justice Scalia answered in a way that just blessed my heart. Uh, he says, oh, no, no, writing is not easy for me. In fact, it's painful. Uh, he says, sometimes I will spend an inordinate amount of time on the selection of a single word. And he says, uh, so it is, uh, it's, it's a painful thing to do. I'm pleased at the end, but the process is hard. And I appreciated that because, uh, because I experienced it in the same way. So uh, George Will once said, uh, when he was asked uh, if he enjoys writing, he thought for a moment and he says, I enjoy having written. And I think that puts it in a great perspective. So the process is difficult, but if you do it well, you look back and there's a great deal of satisfaction there. You know, electric, elected officials sometimes end up changing their mind over time mm -hmm. on important issues. Uh, they could be motivated by polling. They could be in motivated by a personal experience. Can you share an example of a time where maybe you've changed your viewpoint on an important issue? Um, I used to really favor Rocky Mountain uh, stream fishing. And now I love, I love fishing for northern. <laughs> That's a very good judicial answer. Um, what sets you apart from the other candidates? I think, it's, um, I think it's having that long public record of constitutional conservatism. So I've spent pretty much my entire career working on, uh, on the importance of understanding and applying the original public meaning of our Constitution and why it's so very important for, uh, for our courts uh, to, um, to act on that basis, to act as a court, not as a legislature, to not import personal preferences or values, but simply to work on the law. And, uh, and so I've done that um, both on and off the court. Um, you know, off the court, I've uh, just recently uh, written a manual on legislative oversight for Wisconsin in which I go, a part of the manual goes through in detail the type of authority Wisconsinites have loaned to each of the branches of government in explaining why it's so very important that they exercise only the authority that Wisconsinites have asked them uh, to exercise. And it was received well enough that I was asked to write one for Michigan as well, and then Illinois. I'm not entirely sure what Illinois is gonna do with it, but they're interested, and so uh, we're just wrapping that one up now. And, um, you know, I've gone around the state of, uh, of Wisconsin over the last year and a half or so and uh, giving what um, 
have been referred to. I didn't think of them as lectures at the time, but they've been referred to as lectures uh, about our constitutional order and the proper role and function of the court within that constitutional construct. And so what I bring is that long uh, public trusted record of someone who's committed to simply applying the law and not bringing in my values or my politics. Is there some nuance and difference between you and the other conservative candidate, Judge Doro? Sure, I, I, and I think it goes exactly to that. It's that public record. So, um, you know, I think that in, in what I've been hearing is that people don't want to rely on just what a candidate says about himself or herself. They want to be able to look at something outside of that candidate and say, oh, here's some objective information that shows me who you are and what you do. And so when people look outside of what I say about myself, they see that long public record of constitutional conservatism. So, you know, when I was appointed to uh, the Supreme Court in 2016, I was already a well-known constitutional conservative long before I came to the court. And people can go back and they can point to that. They can point to the legislative oversight manuals that I've written. They can point to the lectures I've given. They can point to the uh, opinions that I've written while on the court. Uh, and, um, and I think they've been useful opinions. So, you know, the body of work that I've done when I was on the court has been cited or quoted or relied upon hundreds of times by courts here in Wisconsin and across the country. And that's just a, that's an experience uh, and depth of experience and record that, uh, that Jennifer doesn't have. You mentioned your time on the state Supreme Court previously, 2016 mm -hmm. to 2020, you lost your bid in 2020 for a full term. Why do you think yeah. you can win this time? Um, because of what happened in 2020. Uh, and what I mean is this, uh, I take two, uh, two lessons from 2020. One, uh, that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders combined can turn out more voters than me. Well, that could hardly be otherwise, right? I mean, two presidential candidates are always going to be able to turn out more voters than a state Supreme Court race. So uh, the second lesson that I take from 2020 is that uh, I received uh, almost 700,000 votes in that election. And I think that number is significant for this reason. If you set aside uh, years in which there was a presidential primary on the same day as the Supreme Court election, there's only one justice in the history of the state who got as many votes as I did. So when I look at that, um, and I look at this year, there are no presidential primaries anywhere in sight. So I'm comfortable that we're going to be able to put together enough votes to be successful this year. Is there any one thing that's been said or reported about you that you'd like to clarify or change? Um, I can't think of any right offhand. I mean, I, you know, I think people are looking at, uh, like I said, not only at what I've said about myself, but what others have said about me. One thing perhaps I, I might add to that is you know, we have uh, on our judiciary today two premier constitutional conservatives. And uh, one of them would be uh, Justice Rebecca Bradley of the Supreme Court, and the other would be uh, Judge Shelley Grogan of the Court of Appeals. And both of them have endorsed me, and, uh, and I think it's important to understand why they did. So uh, what they tell me is that they looked carefully at each of the four candidates, looked at their records, looked at their history, what they've done, what they've said. And their conclusion is that I am the only constitutional conservative 
in the race. And so uh, what I would say to my fellow Wisconsinites is if you want your next justice to do the work of a court and not of a legislature, if you want the next justice to, um, to rely entirely on the Constitution and our laws to decide cases, to put aside personal politics, put aside personal values, and just do that one thing that they've asked us to do, then I'm their candidate. This past fall, record campaign spending blew old numbers out of the water, expected this state Supreme Court race to also break records for such a race. What are your thoughts on the record levels of particularly outside spending and influence in this race? Well, I think that, uh, one, as a, uh, as a, a judicial candidate, I would never want to say anything that would um, suggest any effort to chill anyone's desire to speak in this election. So, uh, so the one thing I would say is, so long as it's accurate, uh, a, a free and open debate is the best thing that we can possibly have. And uh, if there are resources that are coming in to amplify that so that people across the state have an opportunity to hear what's at stake and who each of the candidates are, um, I, think that's, uh, I think that's a good thing. We want to know as much as we possibly can about how each of the candidates would potentially perform on the Supreme Court. And to the extent that, the, uh, that, uh, that resources are put into that effort, I think that's all good. Uh, you know, there's, uh, we've, never, uh, we've ne- never suffered from having too much conversation, but we will always suffer from having too little. Uh, this is the final question. The state, as you know, is deeply divided politically. And when we look at polling on the U.S. Supreme Court, really record lows in terms of confidence in the U.S. Supreme Court. What is your pledge to voters as a justice if you're elected to preserve and build public confidence in the role of the court? That's a great question, and my answer is everything that we've just talked about. And truly, it might sound a little bit glib, but truly it is that. Because I think that um, the way that we reinstill confidence in the courts is not to go running off and dealing with political issues. I think that will just destroy the credibility of the court. Politics are poison to what the court does. So, uh, so my pledge is uh, to do what I have done in the past on the court, and that is to decide cases entirely based upon the law setting aside my personal values, setting aside my personal politics, and just doing that one job that the people of Wisconsin have asked us to do. And, and I think that if we, uh, if we continually do that, if each of the members of the court do that, if they commit to that, if they adopt the methodology that I've developed in doing this, then the confidence in the court will revive. Uh, but so long as, uh, as candidates or jurists are out there talking about their values uh, or how they would handle uh, different issues on the court, that is going to continue to destroy confidence in that critical institution. Well, that will be the last word. Thank you, Justice Daniel Kelly. Thank you, Lisa. And as a reminder to our viewers, the primary election for state Supreme Court is set for February 21st. General election is April 4th. Thank you for watching this episode of Newsmakers. This program is a production of Wisconsin Eye, an independent, nonpartisan, nonprofit media network with a mission to inform, educate, and engage the citizens of Wisconsin.
Wisconsin Eye is the nation's first and only independently funded state civics broadcast network, providing gavel-to-gavel access to government proceedings and events at the state capitol.